I'm Peyton, and this is the Rhizomatic Reader. You are listening to my unedited conversation with Vasuda Bardawaj about Grace Kupfer's book, Legends of Greece and Rome. You can find an edited version of this conversation on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Um, I hit record so that I don't lose any, any data. So, um, hi, I'm Paul. Uh, or P10, and it's really wonderful to meet you. I'm very excited to talk today. And um, go ahead. Me too. Me too. I've heard I've heard really good things about you from Christine, and um, thank you for reaching out to me. Yeah. Well, thanks, Christine, for putting me in touch with you. I'm I'm just so very glad that. Uh, this is the part of the project I've been looking forward to, uh, which is getting to talk to people I've never met and talk to them about books that they love and that they want to discuss and bring into people's consciousness. So it's, it's really wonderful. So I want to um, make sure that I know how to say your name correctly. So I can do all of that work on the back end. So do you mind um, pronouncing your name so I don't screw it up? Uh, not a problem. Uh, so you can you can basically skip the H's in both the first name and the last name. Um, and the vowels in the, in the first name are all short vowels. They're not long. Nothing is stressed. So it's Vasudha. Uh-huh. And the last name is Bharadwaj. Uh, or you can just say it. Bharadwaj. Bharadwaj. Okay. Vasuda. That's perfect. Well, thank you. Um, I I always like to honor people's names. So um, this is very informal. We will just talk, see where the conversation goes. And then I will edit this episode in a couple of weeks um, into, you know, probably 45 to 55 minute episode that will then get put out. And um, I also did send you um, a link to um, just a information form. Um, Mm -hmm. I did, I didn't see if you had filled I didn't see you had filled it out yet uh, when I was preparing this morning, which is totally fine. So, but if you could fill that out at some point, it helps me to get some information about, you know, uh, if you want the full two, you know, the full two hour recording or however long we go to be released and also who you want to have me invite and stuff like that. So, okay. Yes. Sorry. For some reason, I actually missed, I, I think I, I basically read a lot of my emails on my phone and I just missed um, seeing the link on my phone. Um, I'll, I'll fill it out by the end of the day today. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So that's great. And then I also sent you um, just a little bit ago. I don't know if you got it in your email or not, but I just sent you a link to just kind of like a notes page that I'm using to sort of help guide my own thinking. And I see you're in there. So that's perfect. Um and yeah, so go ahead. Um, so one of the things I, I was looking through it and one of the things that really um, concerned me is that I think you and I have different editions of the book. Okay. Um, I, I have basically uh, one with no illustrations and um, 
it's it's basically a children's book. It's only 190 pages, I think, the mm-hmm. PDF file. Um, so I, I thought I would mention that first, uh, just to be upfront about it. Okay, well, that's okay. Um, I, mine is only 220 pages, so I'm mm-hmm. sure the I'm sh- I hope the content is the same. Um, I'm sure it is. Uh, it's the same author, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, um, blanking out. Uh, Grace, um, Grace. Yeah, Grace uh, Koop, Koopfer. Um, yes, I think yeah, so. Yeah, Grace H. Koopfer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, mine is also, it also reads as a children's book. It's, it's a, so I, you know, the, the stories are probably the same and we'll just, um, I don't think we'll have any problems with any of that, though I might comment a little bit on some of the in my does your version have poems in it or no uh it has some poems okay Uh, it's it's not there there aren't poems after every story though no there aren't poems after every story in mine either um there's there's some stories that have poems and some that don't so um so that's okay um we we probably have basically the same type of a version so we'll just work with it um I think it'll be fine uh the 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 general gist should be about the same and yeah when you when you if you read any quotes or if there's anything that you're gonna like point out today and even when you put those into the into the form document Mm -hmm. um I'll just use your page numbers and and that'll be okay I won't I won't go try to fish them out of mine um, and we'll just let people know there are various versions of it. I, I will say in the introduction that, um, like to the edited version, how we found the mm-hmm. PDF copy of the book, you know, like there are open access PDFs of this book because it's such an old book and uh, all of that. So great. Be good. Awesome. Um, the, the other thing was I actually don't have any quotes or anything that I highlighted, but it's more like the, the particular stories that stood out to me. And it's, I think, in, relate, uh, in, in part or in large part related to um, the, the opening uh, question about, about the history of my reading life and so, so forth. Okay, well, let's then let's, you know, let's dive in. I, I always like to start there. This is, you know, one of the things that's very interesting to me is the history of people's reading life. So just start talking to me about that and how, how you think about it. Right. Um, so, so I'm Indian. Uh-huh. And, um, English was the fourth language that I learned. Um, and I started learning it when I started going to preschool, which was around, uh, I think it was uh, four, maybe when I, uh, or, or three or four when I started. Um, and um, the uh, English was basically limited to, to the context of school uh, for the first couple of years. Um, and I think I, when I was around five, my, my father realized that I actually understood <laughs> English when he was having a conversation with someone else. And I, I used a word that he didn't think I knew. But basically, um, uh, the many of the stories that we read in class or the teacher would read to us, I was in a Catholic school, um, 
typically had um, characters named Tom and Anne, and that was not the, the, the kind of name that I associated with, with the world around me. But mm. English was the only, only language that I knew how to read and write. Um, and I read this particular book when I was around 10 or 11. So basically, I actually started reading for pleasure when I was eight, uh, seven or eight. Um, and I started with comic books. Um, and when I say comic books, it's, it, I, I mean uh, comic books that are very, very Indian. Um, so there's this uh, line of books called Amar Chitra Katha, which is basically Hindu mythology and uh, Indian history. Uh, well, not just Hindu mythology, mythology, South Asian mythology in general, um, and a lot of history and historical figures. So, um, that was sort of my, my major reading. And then I started to read uh, things like Enid Blyton, which were um, British. Uh, in, I, I don't know if you've heard of Enid Blyton. Enid Blyton. Uh, I think she's much more uh, uh, a British and Commonwealth thing <laughs> figure. Um, so she wrote children's books um, and um, uh, had... Um, the series called Famous Five and Secret Seven. And um, these were mystery series with, with, where children solved mysteries and um, mm -hmm. very exciting. And I used to read them under the bed covers with mm -hmm. a, a flashlight of when I should have been sleeping. Um, and um, it, it, was, it was all very interesting and everything, but um, it was always like I was reading about a world that was very different from mine. So it was very much escape reading, unless I read the comic books, which were which had stories that were also part of a big part of the oral culture uh, that I inhabited. Um, and um, then one in in the summer between um, third and fourth grade or fourth and fifth grade, basically one of the summers, um, I I started. Um, trying to read everything that was there in the local public library. And I came across this book, which was The Legends of Greece, Greece and Rome, and it blew my mind because it there was so much in here that was familiar to me um, that, um, but uh, familiar, but different. And for the first time I was reading something in English, which, uh, I felt like I had a connection to. And that I think in a lot of ways. So, so in terms of my reading life, that, that, in, uh, that has um, influenced a lot of my interests. I really got interested in folklore and mythology because of this book um, and started actively um, reading more about even, even Hindu mythology because that was something that um, I, I knew about, but I hadn't actually read about. Um, and um, even now, like I, I, I read a lot, but I tend to have uh, genres that I fall back to because these are things that I tend to think most about um, and um, find cross-cultural connections. And it, it gives me a way to talk to my son about cross-cultural connections too. Mm -hmm. um, 
because because he's growing up here, which again for him is a completely different experience. So it's again familiar yet alien. Did you? I want to go back to like reading these comic books about Hindu mythology and and Indian history. Um, you were reading those in English. Mm-hmm. Yes, English was literally was and is the main language that I read. Um, in in terms of uh, Indian languages, the only other language that I can read is Hindi. Um, and it's not my first language. It's, it's not my native language. It's my fifth language. And I speak it fairly fluently, but I, I, it's, it's, it's not easy for me to read in Hindi. So I, I, I read in English. Hindi is a lot more alien to me than English is. Mm-hmm. And so are you still like, besides the reading in you know, English and, and partially in Hindi, you're clearly multilingual. Mm-hmm. You yes. speak five languages. <laughs> um, on a day-to-day basis, um, I, I tend to, because I live here, I use English most of the time. When I talk to my family, I vary between um, three, three languages usually, but it, it dep- the, which three languages I use depend on who I'm speaking to. So when I speak to my mom, I, I switch between Telugu and English. Uh, or when I speak to my brother, it's Telugu, Hindi, and English, my, my brother or my niece or nephew. If I speak to my sister-in-law, she speaks Hindi uh, and English and a little bit of Telugu, but she's, again, she has a different language. So it's, it's basically all about knowing which languages to switch between. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, other than that, I, I learned um, German when I, when I lived in Switzerland. I, I lived in Switzerland for four years and uh, my son was in daycare. And um, the daycare that he was in did not speak any English. So I had to learn German really fast. Oh. Um, yes. So Which that's is not an easy language, by the way. It's hard. It is. It is. And it's nine fifteen. Sorry, I should I should switch that off because I think it will interrupt the recordings. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. Yeah, it's um it's hard and but but at the same time i mean it's in in some ways it's um as long as long as you're not um insistent on having perfect grammar it's not that hard mm-hmm. yeah so you you were talking about how when you were a young child you would you know read under the covers and you know, you were kind of drawn to these books about mythology or the mystery books and stuff like that. Did you grow up in a household that was uh, very actively a reading household? Or is this just something that you ended up taking up as part of your lived experience? So that's a, that's a good question. And I was thinking of that earlier because, um, the, the way I grew up, um, my, my parents never read to me. Mm-hmm. They, they each read individually. Mm-hmm. They just never read to me. It was not a thing. Um, 
uh, it, it, it never even occurred to them. The only time they ever read to me was during the pujas, the, the, the prayers around any, any uh, religious celebrations. Then I would have to sit down and then they would read to me and I did not want to be there sitting and listening. Um, so, so um, reading for pleasure was definitely something that was there in our household. Um, reading for pleasure, or just reading as an activity, um, but it was not something that um, was ever uh, actively encouraged. And my my brother like reading the newspaper, but he didn't go out of his way to look for books to read. Um, he's much more of a reader now than he was back in our childhood. Um, I think I read a lot more than um, anyone in our household, just because um, my brother's a lot older than me. I was a very protected child and I stayed home for much of the time and books were my companions, essentially. Mm-hmm. So um, as you, you said that you kind of fall back into particular genres uh, mm-hmm. of things that you like to read, is that mythology and folklore? Is it mystery? Like, how did you sort of, yeah, tell me the trajectory of like what it is that you grew interested in, in terms of your reading and how, how you keep that up as an adult. So that might take us through teenage years or anything, you know? So um, I love I love mythology and folklore. Um, okay. I also love um, oh the the English classics and and this is, again is is um, I think uh, a legacy from my mother because she she uh, even now um, loves reading things like Jane Austen and um, <laughs> and. Uh, Wuthering Heights, and she she used to talk to me about them when I was not interested in reading them. And then when I grew old enough to read them, I would bring them home, and then the books would disappear because she would be reading them. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, um, we that that was something that um, she and I often did. So meal times on school days would often be. Uh, I would be home by three o'clock. I'd be having a late lunch and I would be sitting at the dining table with a book propped up in front of me and reading it while I ate. And my mom would be doing exactly the same thing. Um, And um, other than that, I also really like fantasy. um, um, And um, the... I, I also like things like Sherlock Holmes. So, so again, yeah. It's, uh, so, so Sherlock Holmes is interesting in 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 terms of um, where I place it in, in in my mind in terms of genres because it's classic literature, it's mystery, but it's also sort of like got this really interesting. Um, tension about how it represents the East. Um, so the idea of um, um, domination and power and how how that is maintained and um, um, 
undermined in in some cases that's that's another thing that i find fascinating i love agatha christie's and i think i i read a lot of agatha christie's i i i read all of them um i made a mission to read all of them through my teens um and uh, i also reread them several times in part not because i read them only for the mystery but um Every time, depending on what age I am, I seem to discover a lot more um, in the books. So um, I understood a lot about uh, the effects of war in Europe. Uh, when I was reading Agatha Christie in high school, um, and um, sometimes I, I, I see my son doing the same thing where he picks up a book, he's reading something, um, does a quick fact check uh, on the internet. And then uh, he, he, he comes up with this random trivia and I'm like, hey, how do you know that? And he's like, oh, I read this in this book. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's exactly what I used to do when I was that age. Um, so you, you said early on in the conversation that you know, when you were young, you were reading books about, you know, Tom and Jane and like, you know, this felt very foreign in terms of these are not names that you were necessarily associating with your lived reality. Mm -hmm. And yet it seems like a lot of the literature that you were reading growing up or even your mother was reading is, is steeped in what we would call the English classics. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how, yes. how did that come to be? Is it is it because of British colonial rule? Is it because of, yeah, how did how did that happen? So, um, short answer: Yes, it is because of the British uh, colonial heritage. Um, but the long answer to that is um, in my in. So my mother and I um, were both part, part of a particular um, line of school. Um, well, sorry, I'm fr trying to frame that sentence. Mm -hmm. I think I have to go back a, a little bit. So, so the Indian education system has different national boards and state boards, uh, which basically is a kind of, uh, um, uh, the, the curriculum is different. And my mom and I were both part of a certain curriculum that emphasized uh, the English classics. Um, mm. I actually went to this, went to a school when from age eight to age uh, eighteen. Basically, I spent ten years of my life, of my school life, um, in a school that was uh, started by the founder of that particular education board. Uh, that that particular curriculum. It was an Anglo-Indian school. Um, so I actually, in, in terms of my lived experience, as opposed to my mom's, I, I was much more familiar with, uh, with names like Tom and Anne in my, in my daily lived life, because my third grade teacher was Helen Hopkins. My fourth grade teacher, uh, my fifth grade teacher was Eugene Roscoe. So, so, um, I had I had a lot of Christian, um, not just Christian, but actually British or uh, Anglo-Indian uh, teachers. But the at the same time, it, it was always that 
my lived experience outside of books, outside of school, it was fairly um, different from what I was reading. And I think it was much more so in the books by Enid Blyton, which I had mentioned earlier, uh, which I think pretty much all children of my generation growing up have read Enid Blyton's because they were the, the main books that were available in English at the time. Um, and uh, now there's a lot more options. There's a lot more Indian writers writing in English for children. At that time, not so much. Um, and Enid Blyton was very definitely steeped in uh, Christian values. And she actually had even uh, books that were simplified versions of Bible stories, uh, not explicitly so, not, not, not overtly so, not, uh, not that they announced themselves in the title, uh, but they were definitely um, religious stories and seeking to enforce Christian values in, in children. And this was something that I recognized really early on because like I said, my, my um, early elementary school education was in a Catholic convent where um, they, they were much harsher in, in, in terms of how, uh, how we were, were taught uh, uh, Christian lessons. We had, we had a class called Moral Science um, that was especially, oh, wow. mm -hmm. especially for this. Um, so it was, I, it never, I, I don't think it really mattered very much for my mom or dad um, that they were reading such things or that I was reading such things. But for me, it was for, because we moved, moved to this school when I was eight um, and we moved from the south of India to the north of India where I didn't speak Hindi at that time. Um, and I was not literate in Hindi and I failed my first Hindi exam with a grand score of 1%. <laughs> <laughs> I, I barely knew my alphabet. Right. Um, and um, it, it basically, I, I always was very aware of being a minority. And that I think also tuned me into um, just that sense of discomfort um, or, or, a recognition that okay, this is this is different, and I am going to figure out why. Um, and eventually, um, that feeling I think eventually grew into what became my PhD project, uh, which was on uh, the history and politics of English in um, in twentieth century India. Okay, so you have a PhD. Yes. I, I don't really have a good background of what you do for a living. <laughs> um, I, I teach uh, writing and communication at Rice University. Oh, awesome. Yes. Amazing. Uh, thank you. Um, I, I love my job. Um, yeah. I, my, my PhD, though, I started out in the English department, um, realized a couple of years in that the kind of the secondary material I was looking for was actually not available because no one had done that kind of work. 
and eventually went on to do a, a, a dual degree between um, English and history, got both departments to sign off, did coursework in both, wrote a single dissertation, thankfully, and um, then um, taught in history for a couple of years in SUNY Albany, and, and then did my postdoc also in history. So where did you like uh, do, your, do your coursework, your undergrad, your your PhD, all of that? My, my undergrad and master's I did in India, um, uh-huh. in Delhi University. Um, and my first job was in the English language teaching textbooks division of um, Oxford University Press in India. Um, and then I came here to the US and I did my PhD from upstate New York, the University of Rochester. Oh, beautiful. Very cold. <laughs> yes. Yes. It very was cold. Very, very cold. I, I I remember like the first few years of my life in Rochester. I, I remember thinking this whole idea of hell being a hot place is totally off because hell has to be cold. Yes. I, I grew up in the, you know, Wisconsin and Minnesota. And so I, I understand. I think cold is the worst thing ever. I mean, yeah. even this morning I stepped out and it had rained overnight and it kind of cooled off quite precipitously overnight. And I was like, oh, it's kind of chilly out, yeah. um, you know? And I'm like, it's only 70, but it feels when it's 98 all the time here. Right. It feels very um, cool outside. So, so go where ahead. Are you, if I may ask. What's that? Where are you located? Are you in Houston or? Elsewhere? Oh yeah, I live. I live in Conroe, actually, which is just oh. north of Houston. Um, but yeah, I I am a professor at Sam Houston State University. I teach educational research and uh, a lot of courses in things like diversity and cultural issues in higher education and things of that nature. And but I also have an I have an undergraduate degree in. English and history, actually. And, you know, I've always been a reader my whole life. And, you know, I just didn't go and pursue terminal degree in literature, but I am still like a quite avid reader. And so I have always wanted to, I just like talking to people about books and I I just like reading things. I'm like, I like to read anything. I like to learn about stuff. And so I had this idea for the podcast uh, a couple of years ago and I was like, I'm just going to start this and we're going to see, I'm going to get to meet new people and learn about their reading life. I'm always interested in how do people become readers? Mm-hmm. Right. That's- how do they, you know, it's, it's a fascinating thing to talk to people about their process of developing reading habits and how they maintain it and all of that kind of stuff. Right. It's it's a brilliant idea. I mean, I, I've been listening to your podcast since uh, since Christine um, interviewed with you, and um, I love it. Oh, good. Well, thank you. I'm so glad. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 fun. It's fascinating. We're reading lots of really different books, and uh, you know, now we're really into the fun part where I'm getting to to talk to people I've never met before and. Uh, it's pretty, pretty awesome. So um, anything else you want to, uh, before we move on to the actual book that we're talking about today, anything else you want to say about like 
your reading life, the history of your reading life, even what you're doing now in terms of your reading life? Now, actually, I mean, the, the sad thing is now I seem to read a lot less um, mm-hmm. just because I, I feel like I don't have enough time. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it, it seems to be constantly, instead of reading texts, uh, written texts, I think, I think um, I, I, I'm a single mom with a nine-year-old. And um, he and I have this thing where if you're watching anything on TV, we, we're never just watching. We're constantly talking about it as we go along. And um, we also seem to talk constantly about everything and anything. So, so I, I think I mentioned before, I grew up in a largely oral culture. Mm-hmm. So um, that I feel has stayed with me because uh, storytelling is is a big part of my everyday existence, even even if it's not so much about reading exactly. And um, I work with my students uh, at Rice and I teach a theme-based first-year composition, uh, first-year writing course. And um, I, I teach about the history and politics of English as a global language. And I do this deliberately with the purpose of saying, hey, you know what? We, we all take this for granted. I used to take it for granted, but it's something that is um, English being this medium through which we we access texts, through which we access knowledge, um, through through which we uh, communicate is so, uh, it's so historically and politically specific. It's so historically and politically charged Um, and even if, if one tries to be objective or, or neutral and in, in terms of uh, not bringing any kind of cultural um, baggage or trying to stay uh, secular, um, there's, there's just because given the way in which um, English has spread around the globe and given the way in which um, it is such an integral part of education in places where it's not the local language. Mm-hmm. It is something that, uh, that, that you, you always have so much to think about in terms of the power and the privilege and um, um, the, the process of translation even that comes um, with the language. So, I mean, I, I, I read l- less in terms of fiction, um, but I, see, I feel like I'm reading a lot more about uh, issues related to the language and the use of language and, and communication. Um, and I also talk to my son constantly about all of these things and um, uh, passing on my own interest in not just languages, but also in, in folklore and cultural translation to him. Yeah, I'm, I've really become quite interested in 
literature and translation, uh, partially because I think that since I've moved to Houston, Brazos does a lot of these kind of like book talks and stuff with, mm-hmm. with folks from, with, with, you know, translated authors and, and stuff like that. But also I've, I've gotten into following a lot of these groups uh, like uh, Words Without Borders and, and some other international literary translation things. I also subscribe to this kind of bi-monthly, I get this box in the mail of like two newly translated pieces of world literature that have been just translated into English. But I also recognize my own, I, I often feel, and I, I, I talk to my students about this, that, you know, we do a great disservice in this country because we don't emphasize multilingualism. Like I can only read in English, you know, when I, even when I took foreign languages uh, in college, like I took Spanish for several years, it was the reading part that uh, of the curriculum that ended forcing me out of getting the, you know, the minor or, you know, picking up some other certification because I just found the reading part to be so impossible in a foreign language. Right. And, and, and I mean, just, just you saying that, I feel like in, in, a, in one sense, that was sort of my gridlock. Um, when I was in second grade, I used to struggle with reading. Um, and um, my brother was the one who introduced me to these comic books. And I really loved them because it was much less tech. And, and you, it just made me a lot more comfortable, I think, with with reading. Um, and um, I, I realize now that um, it's sort of I when when we are watching TV, both my son and I, we we both do this independently. Even or we switch on subtitles because uh, mm-hmm. we we read as we listen. Um, and we do that without even realizing it most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm, subtitles. That's a whole other thing. I've gotten yeah. into subtitles uh, <laughs> a little bit because uh, my partner will often put the subtitles on. And, and so then, yeah, I'm reading. I'm not really paying attention so much to always the action on the screen. Um, it's an, yeah, important, interesting way to think about things. So, um, so this book you read when you were a child. I know that you said that you wanted to read it again or you wanted to talk about it because you you felt like it was such an important book. Yes. To to your development. So so let's get into it. Legends of Greece and Rome by Grace Kupfer. And I think this book was published in like 1930 or 1932. Yes. It it was in the early early 1900s yeah so the first edition apparently of this book was out in may 1897 oh okay so it's it's even the 19th century book yeah yes and um the edition that i have is uh reprint reprinted in india in uh 1952 Mm mm-hmm so, t- so tell me, why did this book stick with you? 
why did you choose this book to talk like to have me read uh to have us discuss um i think i think that was more related to to the initial email that you sent out um and um you had written about um you had you had basically uh written saying uh uh saying that you'd like to talk about a book that either stayed with you or that that uh, that people that you want to read or or think uh-huh. you should read or that you won't read right so anything of that kind right yeah and and initially, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be interesting. There's this other book and this. I, I, I was thinking of a hundred different books. And then it, somewhere I would keep coming back to Legends of Greece and Rome. Because in terms of books that stayed with me, this book, I think, just sort of transformed how I felt in terms of the, my connectedness, my personal connectedness to what I read. Um, and in in that sense, I, I I recommended this book to you just because it seemed to be such um, a weird little weird choice, um, weird in an interesting way, odd in an interesting way for a ten year old South Asian girl uh, to to latch onto and to and to carry through her life. Mm-hmm. Um, and this book, I think, was stands out to me because unlike the, the stories about Tom and Anne and George that I was reading, um, the the characters in these books were familiar. The names were different, but pretty much every character, um, all of the gods, all of the heroes, the uh, and the ways in which they were talked about, um, the the victims even, were all really familiar culturally, um, even though they were from a different part of the world. And that was something that I had never experienced before. Yeah, I, I have to say, I really enjoyed the book so much for several reasons. One was that I, I, I do remember in college taking a Greek and Roman mythology course, um, which was kind of part of the standard curriculum, or it was like an elective course that you could take to fulfill a kind of, you know, whatever it was in our English curriculum that you should know something about world mythology or, or world folklore or whatever. And I had taken a course, but um, I hadn't really read a lot of that stuff in probably 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm going through and, and in my margins, I, ha- I had written like several times, oh yeah, I remember this story <laughs> or, I, or I see how this story has really impacted even ongoing storytelling in our cultures today, mm-hmm. right? So even like the little poems that are included in, in the book, I... I had written by one of the poems, I was like, oh, I'd forgotten how much, particularly I think like 19th century British poetry mm-hmm. is really influenced by a lot of these old 
Greek and Roman myths and, and things of that nature. So how do you how do you see these stories matching up with, I don't know if we want to say just uh, Hindu mythology or Indian mythology? Do, do you think that the, you said it seemed familiar to you? Why did it seem familiar as a child? So as a child, it seemed fam- very familiar because a there was a whole pantheon of gods. It was not monotheistic. Um, and the gods were, were essentially just humans with divine power. Mm. Um, and they were very flawed. Uh, they were emotional, basically. And this is something that's characteristic of, of Hindu mythology. Uh, the, the idea of uh, a god... And here I'm not I'm not saying of of God in general in in the sense of uh, a higher power, but the idea of gods or godliness it was more that of um, an abstract personification or a personification of uh, abstract human experience, um, and every every part of human re- experience can be found in either a particular deity who represents that experience or a particular uh, god who also goes through a similar experience. And there was almost a one-on-one correspondence um, to figures that I had grown up hearing stories about from my mom who loved, uh, who loves uh, Hindu mythology Um, and uh, the, the Greek pantheon, the Roman pantheon. So so Jupiter or Zeus have Indra uh, as the, the uh, Hindu uh, equivalent. Um, Agni is the god of fire and is, um, there's, there's Neptune who is Varuna and there's the, like different figures. You, you have like almost exact, um, an exact equivalent in Hindu mythology. Um, and then also figures like uh, Hercules. Uh, Indian culture, uh, like Hindu, Hindu mythology, has a very similar figure uh, named Bhima, who, who's this individual with superhuman strength, um, who, who performs a lot of heroic acts and who's, who's not perfect. I mean, he's, he's a human, but he's blessed by the gods. Um, he's connected to the gods in some way. And... Um, the idea of of um, of the earth and the cycles of the earth oh um, yes connected um, to um, to the to gods uh, there being a god of the earth i mean that is a, a very central um, um, part of whatever form of Hinduism. And again, I use the word Hinduism every time and I'm not entirely comfortable with it because Hinduism can be anything from um, a philosophical belief in the divinity of everything that is very close to atheism to a a literal um, um, idea of some particular uh, God being the ultimate uh, power. But um, basically this, this notion of nature being divine, um, nature being a god, is, is also a central part of um, Hinduism. And 
for me, that's also something that's that's very personal because my name actually means the 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 earth, um, the goddess of the earth. So so Vasudha is uh, the goddess of the earth. So so the first time I read the story about Ceres and Persephone, I was like, oh my goodness. And I was so excited that I went and told my mother, did you know there was such a story? And she was like, no, I didn't, as a matter of fact. And she, she sat and read the story with me. And that was, that was fun. So that's one of the stories that most resonates with you in the book or? or... Um, no, it's, it's, it's one of my favorite stories. I remember it being one of my favorite stories. Um, but it was just the fact that hey, there is this other culture that, that, ha- that personifies the, the earth as a divine being um, and um, where nature is actively worshipped in its different forms. I mean, there's a sun god, there's a sun god that, that Hindus have, um, there's a god of the moon, and all of that basically was was um, a really important part. And I think it also was really big that um, there were these ideas of divine curses and divine rewards, um, which again part of every every um, um, every story in Hindu mythology. There there is either either a curse in action or a reward. Um, uh, that's that's being sought. Um, so so all of that basically just fascinated me and blew my mind. And I, I remember then starting to look for more of these. And uh, it it really um, w- what you said earlier about it being um, so central to uh, a lot of classic uh, British literature and poetry. I think that was one of the reasons why eventually I whatever I read in Shakespeare, I was very comfortable with reading anything in, in oh, English yeah. literature. I did my bachelor's and my master's in English literature, essentially. And if, if it hadn't been for, for this book, I don't think that would have happened. Yeah, I mean, several things you said that really resonate with me was like this, the way that nature plays into all of these stories. I, I kept writing in the margins, you know, reverence for nature. I hadn't, I hadn't read it as nature being divine. So that's something I'll go back and think about. I mean, maybe I read it that way, but I, I, I was sort of seeing the ways that like in a lot of the stories these, these humans that end up getting entangled with the gods in some way, right? They become like parts of nature. Like yeah. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, like the story of Narcissus, for example, I think where he ends up turning into this kind of drooping flower that, you know, is constantly staring at itself. So these, these ways that, you know, there's obviously a moral tale there about you know, why it's bad to be narcissistic. Um, Or or like these people who get turned into trees, or I really loved the story about uh, the great bear and the little bear where, you know, uh, 
Jupiter had come and beside, you know, Juno, his wife was very jealous of them and, you know, had turned them into, had turned the mother into a bear. And, and then, you know, the, the boy killed the mother and there's a lot of violence in the book too, but, um, but, but then, you know, Jupiter comes along and he, he puts them in the sky as like, as constellations, you know, that you can still see them in the sky type of thing. And so I just love those. I loved thinking about that and thinking about how we still have those stories and, and ways of thinking about things that have been around for, for literally tens of thousands of years. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, when you, when you said uh, the stories of the humans whose lives get entangled with the gods, I mean, one of the, the stories that even before I looked at the book, of course, I remember the story of Narcissus, but I never forgot the story of Daphne um, and how she was turned into a laurel tree. And I actually remembered her name um, from the, the first time that I had read it. And she always fascinated me also because um, there's a story about um, a woman in, in Hindu mythology about a woman um, who is um, pursued by a god, if I remember correctly. And um, in order to protect herself, she basically um, transforms herself into a plant. And that's the holy basil, um, which is a very central uh, thing in a lot of uh, Hindu households. Um, Almost every Hindu household, I mean, there's the expectation that, that you would have a holy basil plant. And that's because like, it represents that woman. And it, it, it just feels like the, the power of the stories are because in, in large part, because of their links to the objects in everyday life or, or th- experiences in everyday life. Yeah, like, you know, even not just plants, right? Like, you know, in some of these stories, and I forget which story it is exactly, but in one of the stories, you know, the people get turned into rocks and and they're put in the ocean. And, you know, it, it, it kind of made me think of, you know, these, story, these stories probably did grow potentially out of an oral culture, Um I don't know. I had an interesting experience this weekend. I was at an academic conference and one of the uh, presenters was talking about this uh, uh, 15th century letter that had been written by a Spanish priest uh, in <clears throat> who had uh, come, come to the newly discovered Americas and, and he was unpacking this thing and, and he was he made this comment that made me think of this book because he said, you know, we kind of have this understanding that, or or we have, he said, we have a mythology that people pass stories on only orally. And he said, I thought, I think that's bullshit. I think people were always writing stories down. They, you know, we couldn't remember these things. I don't know. I don't know why I started talking about that because, but I was just thinking about, Oh, because of the rocks. I was Mm -hmm. thinking like these stories were passed down in order to teach people particular types of lessons or perhaps to teach them how to navigate the world. 
Like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, if you're traveling in this sea and you see these rocks, they're dangerous, right? Like stay away from these rocks so you don't get shipwrecked or whatever, or, yeah. you know, whatever the case is. Um, so just like the tales of Odysseus and the Iliad and all of those types of things, they, they all come together in a particular form or fashion. Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I think, so So yesterday, this weekend, I, I met with someone that I was actually in school with from third grade up to my senior year. Oh, cool. Um, and we were meeting after like 25 years almost. And it, it just one, during the conversation with him about, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember that? And he was like, you always wrote so much in English class. Um, it, it didn't matter whether it was English language or English literature. There was always so much that you had to say um, when you were asked to write. And I was thinking uh, that that also reminded me again of, of this book because um, it was in part like the fact that I, I loved my English class and would have so much to say was because like there was some part of my mind that was that was constantly taking away making connections with oh that was interesting there and that was interesting in this other place and the text had made uh, if we we were studying Shakespeare from I think eighth grade onwards so like in in Shakespeare there was so much that I felt like oh there was there are things that I can talk about in Shakespeare that relate back to that. Um, and I'd, I'd constantly be writing in my exams and I'd, I'd write like maybe twice as much as my classmates uh, by the end of the class time. And it, again, it all comes back to the fact that I read this, read this and read a lot of uh, Greek and Roman myths after this book, um, which helped me make sense of this other world of classic classical English literature that didn't make much sense to many of my peers. Yeah, um, I also am quite a Shakespeare fanatic. I took all the Shakespeare classes in college and you know, you can't really get through Shakespeare without understanding you know, a lot of these mythologies or, or at least there's, there's references. I think Shakespeare, I always tell people, if you don't know English history and if you don't know mythology, you're going to miss a lot of the jokes or yes. the, the slights, you know, like, like the, the, the puns, all of the stuff that happens in, the, in those stories or in those uh, plays. But even in his sonnets and stuff, I mean, I, I think it, it's so important. Why do you think... Um, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, I wrote in the margins of this book that I think these stories are important, but I wonder why it is that we continue to return to these particular stories that are kind of rooted in Greece and Rome and that we don't take up more world mythology in our cultural knowledge. 
I'm thinking particularly here of one of my favorite writers right now is Marlon James. Mm -hmm. And Marlon James talks about how he's being very intentional about trying to raise people's consciousness about African folklore. Mm -hmm. um, and he's using African folklore in order to write his, you know, his books and things of that nature. And so I just wonder, you know, as somebody who talks and teaches about the dominance of world Englishes, not that Greece and Rome were English speaking places, but why do you think these particular mythologies have such a staying power over other world mythologies? Or is that just a US based thing? I don't know. I don't know that I would say that, uh, that these have uh, a staying power in all contexts. It would mm -hmm. definitely be uh, uh, an ang Anglophone thing. Mm -hmm. uh, because um, I mean, for me, it these have power um, because I had a, a similar structure uh, or a similar uh, body, a similar repertoire of stories um, that they connected to. Yeah. Um, so for me, these have power because, in in a way, they were my my conduit or access point. To connect to uh, the world, to to the the European and American world, mm -hmm. but um, in in terms of the stories themselves, I mean, again, the cultural context I think makes a huge difference. I mean, if if you went to South Asia, most people, I mean, I I doubt that you would come across many people who, who are interested in or would know anything mm. about uh, uh, Greek and Roman legends, even though uh, a lot of people are English speaking. Um, instead, they would be uh, more uh, able to talk to you about the, 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 the Hindu epics, the, the mythology, the Mahabharata has, has like pretty much very very comparable uh, stories like uh, the the story of uh, Orpheus and Eurydice, for instance. Yeah, as uh, uh, Hindu mythology has the story of Savitri and Satyavan, except that in um, in Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus is the one who goes to bring back his beloved, and in uh, the story of Savitri and Satyavan. Satyavan Savitri, the, the woman, goes to bring back her husband. And she also uh, manipulates things so that she gets a lot of other, um, um, uh, a lot, lot of other rewards for the good of the kingdom, um, which to, to, to go off in a slightly different direction also makes me think about uh, uh, what, to me always felt like one point where there was a fundamental difference in, in both of the literatures where was um, what women did. Uh, I, yes, let's talk about this, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Say more. Yes, so, so um, Eurydice in, in, in this particular collection, Eurydice is just like this flat figure who is beloved by Orpheus. The story is all about Orpheus. And she is loved by him, lost by him. 
Uh, and that's that's the the be all and end all of uh, existence. And then there's the Pandora figure, um, mm-hmm. and then there's the Juno figure, uh, who the the first time that that she that Grace Kupfer mentions uh, Juno, she says she is jealous. Yes, and I remember like that, sort of totally colored how. I expected to see her and every time she appeared I would be like see she is that and even Minerva in in this collection in the story with Arachne is shown as this jealous jealous god or goddess and yeah it's it just yeah, yeah I, I I wanted you know I, I'm so glad you mentioned this this is like one of the things I put on the notes page um because right away in the beginning of the book, uh, I was questioning, is this a feminist text? And, and the reason is because on page 20, mm-hmm. uh, Kupfer writes this kind of long quote, which I'm going to read because I think it'll help inform the discussion. She says, quote, in the faraway days before men had learned many truths, which they now know, They believed that for a long time, man lived by himself without companionship of wife or sister. And sometimes when vexed by their fair companions or tormented, it may be by their own selfishness, they would invent stories telling that woman was sent upon the earth to bring evil into their lives. Evidently, they did not wish to remember the many blessings which they owed to her, end quote. So I, I wrote down, I wrote in the margin, I said, oh, this, is a, this book is a feminist text. But then not only a few pages later is when she introduces Juno and she says, you know, Juno is this jealous and she's painted terribly in the book. Yes. Terribly. Yes. Why? why? What, what is the role of women? Exactly. It, it, it and even even the introduction of Pandora, I, I don't know if that stood out to you. Um, yeah, where where she she draws this explicit compa- comparison to Eve, which I totally missed when I was ten because I I didn't know the story of Genesis. I I knew the story of Jesus, but mm-hmm. I did not know anything from the Old Testament, so I missed that reference. But it was like yes, so so there's this idea of this first woman who brings all the troubles with her because she cannot be obedient uh-huh. and and that really bothered me <laughs> although the pandora story it does stick out to me and i'm going to see if i can see if i can find the pandora story i mean one of the things i did like about the way that she told that story in this book was that she seemed to suggest that even though Pandora had opened this box and had let out all of these things, that that part of what that did was also create the idea of hope. Right, yes. So, you know, she did unleash all this terribleness into the world, but she also released this idea that we might be able to have hope. And of course, I can't find the story now, but... um, Um. In my book, it's on page um, eight. Oh, well, it's very seven. early. Yes, it's very early. It's uh, 
the story named Two Gifts from the Gods and What Came of Them. Yes. Okay. That's right. So in my book, that's on page 20. Okay. So let me see. Yeah. Oh, okay. Because this is the story where the quote just came from. But yeah, uh, at the end of that story on the very last page, um, she says, you know, to this day, as a poet has sung, hope springs eternal in the human breast and man strives against evil and misfortune with courage born of the hope which Pandora brought from the gods and which happily she preserved for her husband and mankind. And I just wrote, that's a nice way to end the story. Pandora brought hope to the earth, even if she also released a lot of bad things right. by opening the box. Right. Yeah. Yes, for sure. And I remember that was, as, as a child, that was one thing that I did. That was the one thing that I did take away that yes, there's also the, the, the figure of hope that she eventually lets out of the box along with the troubles. Um, but the whole representation of Juno um, and the, the passive way in which most of the, the female figures operate in this um, troubled me. Mm-hmm. But it's it's it it also makes me think about um, similar or comparable figures in Hindu mythology, um, the goddesses. Typically, um, the powerful ones are seen as being very powerful, and they 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 don't take any. Um, they wow. don't take. Yes, thank you. <laughs> I wasn't sure about the level of um, whether whether swearing was okay. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to say shit, that's fine too. <laughs> yes, I didn't take any shit. Um, and um, it it seemed like the I'm I'm trying to uh, remember where I started this. Yes, yeah, so so going back to the story of Savitri and Satyavan, like one of the things, and also the story of Dulcie, one of the things about the the human figure. So there was a distinction in it, there's often a distinction in hum, in Hindu mythology uh, between human female figures and the goddesses, oh. and the human or humanized figures typically were expected to be more obedient um, and a very, very um, uh, focused on the well-being of the husband, the children, uh, and the broader community. Uh, the, the goddesses, on the other hand, were just straight out powerful. Um, and I remember one of my favorite stories was always about the birth of uh, Ganesha. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar at all with the figure of Ganesha. This is the, the elephant-headed god in mm-hmm. uh, the Hindu pantheon. Um, and um, Ganesha is supposed to be this, or is the son of Parvati um, in um, Hindu mythology. And Parvati basically just creates him from herself. She, she gets some clay and turmeric together um, and shapes a child out of it and breathes life into it and has her son um, that she just created. And, and he, he's just a normal human boy. And she has him sitting outside her, her door um, 
to, to prevent anyone from coming in while she's bathing. Um, her husband, Shiva, um, comes home, finds this boy who's, who, who refuses him ent entrance, beheads him, um, and then enters. And Parvati is furious. And she is so mad that Shiva, who's, who's the destroyer in, in Hindu mythology, is like, okay, I need to fix this. And he sends everybody, all, all his peeps out uh, to find the first dead creature that they come across so that he can, he can perform a head transplant. They come across an a dead elephant. They bring oh. back the elephant's head and he attaches the elephant's head to the boy's body, which is why you have Ganesha. And Parvati is appeased. So, so you have these, these female uh, goddesses who are feared by all, who are not malicious. They're never malicious. But the figure of Juno is, is so actively malicious in, in these stories that that I, I never could quite understand why that was. I couldn't either. And, I, you know, I, I guess I, you don't really hear, or at least I don't remember reading a lot about it, it, you know, Zeus's wife or Jupiter's wife. Like, I don't remember a lot of these stories. And I know recently there's been a lot of novels and other things coming out that have been kind of retellings of, you know, some of these old Greek and Roman mythologies from different viewpoints, different standpoints and stuff. And I, I, I just wonder if anyone has written about Juno. Do you know, like, what is the backstory? Why is she... Because it's not evident in this book why she's jealous, why she's overly malicious, and and actually I would say quite violent in a lot of ways. Like you know she's she's killing people and turning them into mm -hmm. different figures. You know the, the the whole shape shifting thing. I was just really struck by that. Yeah, I I haven't read anything uh, that would help me explain it. Um, the the one part of me um, wonders after having read like other other uh, versions of many of the myths growing up is whether it was because Zeus and Jupiter were these horribly philandering figures who I mean left to herself she probably wouldn't have wanted to be with at all mm -hmm. and and I I don't know I mean I it's something that I, I, I wish, I wish I could provide closure to that question. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's something that the book makes you want to go and like explore more is just this idea of like why Juno in particular, but, but even some of the other female gods um, or, or the, or the female characters that end up getting turned into these, you know, there's the Medusa figures and, and the, you know, all of these, uh, Medusa is also the three-headed beast, mm -hmm. right? Like they're the women. I mean, just all of this kind of gendered stuff in these stories is, is important to think about. It's, it's fascinating to think about it in a, in a lot of ways. Um, uh, go ahead. The, the other thing that struck me though was uh, uh, one of the things that I had really liked about these stories is the possibility of humans being better than the gods. 
of oh. the idea of jealous gods. Um, and that, I think, is most explicit for me in the story of Arachne, where she's weaving this tapestry and, and Minerva comes to challenge her. And eventually, it turns out that Arachne's tapestry is so much better. Oh, I never thought about it. So what do you think, what do you think the message is there? I think, I think what I get out of that story is basically, well, what I get out of the story now as an adult is different from what I got out of it as a child. Okay. As a child, part of me was like, oh shit. I mean, it's, it's, she, she should respect authority. Um, which I think the story was very much written in a way that that was about reaffirming authority or, or at least uh, at one level saying authority expects to be, um, to be respected. Right. I think, I think that she, uh, she says, you know, she comes down in a different form and she says, you know, you should, you should stop saying all these you know, arrogant things about how you're better, right, Arachne, you should, you know, bow down to the benevolence of, or, you know, if you do, I think the line is something like, if you do this, she will forgive you. Right. And then Arachne is like, I'm not going to do it. And then she's like, okay, well, I'm Minerva, and I'm gonna, we're gonna do this, you know, right. tapestry off or whatever. Yes. And, and then eventually, like, when she, when she makes the better tapestry, I mean, the, the choice she's not even allowed to die when she wants to kill herself to prevent uh, Minerva from punishing her. Um, and instead she's transformed into this uh, explicitly ugly spider um, that is that is forever hanging by a thread. Mm -hmm. And I mean, as a grown-up though, when I read that story, I'm like, wow, this is this is actually a really interesting story just because there's so many layers to it. It's about the insecurity of power. Uh, the, mm. the, the idea that, that what you're born as doesn't necessarily mean that you're limited in what you can actually do if you're, if you're good at it or you work at it. Um, it also makes me um, think of a, a quote from Terry Pratchett. I think it's uh, from one of his early books called Equal Rights, um, where he writes that, um, I'll actually pull up the quote because it's, I, I really don't want to butcher it. Um, yeah. but basically he says, uh, not being aware of where that something is impossible is one of the reasons that someone might become a half brick in the path of the cycle of history. Is that the exact quote? Did you pull no, it up there? No, no you're going to pull it up. Yes. Um, okay. Um, half brick. It is well known that, that a vital ingredient of success is not knowing that what you're attempting can't be done. A person ignorant of the possibility of failure can be a half brick in the path of the bicycle of history. <laughs> that's, that's the Terry Pratchett quote. Uh -huh. so, so it's sort of like Arachne had no idea that, or, or, or 
I had no idea that it's that. Well, maybe Arachne did, but in general, I mean, the the whole idea of be besting a god, being better, um, winning a, a a tapestry off against a god, um, is something that had never been done before, and she didn't realize that it was not that it was impossible and therefore went ahead and did it and of course she got punished for it but she went ahead and did it anyway i mean it feels like there's there's a lot of power and a lot to think about in that story and and it's kind of a theme in many stories i mean there's this other story i for, i'm going to forget all of their names of course but th- there's another story about music like um apollo apparently is like able to play music and and then there's you know he comes down and he has a music competition with one of the with one of the humans who who is it is it i want to say it's pan or something but i am totally blanking out on well this. yeah i mean there this this thing even like i mean even the story of hercules right or yes whatever like Jason and the Golden Fleece. Um, although that story is a little bit different because obviously there's there's a kind of evil cane involved and he's trying to like save the people and you know all this kind of stuff. But so what you're saying is that th- there's a way that humans can be better than the gods and that might provide us with some level of hope or or, or thinking differently about like our, our positionality in relation to the gods. Right, um, right. And, and when you were talking, uh, I was also thinking about Prometheus um, and mm-hmm. his theft of fire and, and everything. And it's, it's sort of, it makes me think even about things like activism um, and mm-hmm. how activism is about posing a challenge to the established way of doing things, um, which, doesn't always end well, but does not mean that one is going to stop doing it. Mm-hmm. So I think I think going back to your earlier question about why do these stories have so much appeal, um, in in stories that in in these mythologies, both Indian mythology and and Greek mythology, Roman mythology stories where you have gods that are challenged by humans. Um, with varying outcomes i think i think it's it's they hold so much fascination because it 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 is about how culturally how uh, humans seem to have always been thinking about how might one navigate in um complex situations uh, complex situations where they themselves might be disempowered and how might they actually find workarounds in in situations that um, where they do not have power and are trying to claim power uh, or or claim some portion of power uh, from the gods or from whoever is the holder of that power. Yeah. 
I'm really glad you said that because I had not really thought about the stories as this, this, this kind of way that you, you can fight power or not, maybe fight is not the right word, but that the, the world is not, I, I think in monotheistic religions, particularly, we grow up with this kind of mentality that, you know, God is uh, omnipresent and God is all powerful, right? Like, I mean, at least as I grew up in the Catholic Christian tradition, uh, so, so you're probably familiar with this. I think you said you went to a Catholic school, right? Where it's, you know, God, particularly in the Old Testament, is, is all powerful. You would not temper God, right? And you could never be better than God. Right. Um, but many of these stories, you are better than the gods. The gods seem to be this kind of... And, and, and then all of these people who defy the gods or, or who in some way, like... I was even struck by, for example, the fact that I, I didn't realize, or maybe I'm just not as familiar with the story as I should be, is when I was reading the story of Hercules, I, I had forgotten all the stuff about like how he gets killed by the poison shirt and, and, and you know, the, the centaurs. I, I love the centaurs, by the way. I, I love to think of these kind of like animal human right. uh, mythological characters and stuff. But I was just like thinking, you know, I didn't realize that Hercules actually went from human to God on Mount Olympus. Like he, mm -hmm. he, so he trans, he transformed, he was able to transfigure. And there's, there's obviously some parallels there with the story of, with, with many stories in Western religion, like uh, Jesus, for example, mm -hmm. obviously, you know, going on to not necessarily become a god, but he rises back to heaven right after his death, just like Hercules does. Um, so I, I think all of that is, is, is really interesting. Or we remember the trees, right? Like you, you mentioned the, what kind of tree is it that? The laurel tree? The laurel <laughs> tree, right. Yeah. Or, or like, you know, so there are all these ways that humans get turned into these plants mm -hmm. that then become kind of like sacred symbols of memory right. or love or a warning about not being narcissistic or whatever, you know, whatever the case is. Right. And, and I think, I think um, what you say, I mean, I have like two or three things that I feel like I urgently want to respond to. Good, say. Uh, so, so one thing was about uh, the gods um, and um, polytheism versus monotheism. Mm. The other thing, and I'm, I'm listing out the points right now because otherwise I'll forget. Okay. Uh, the, the other uh, point that really struck me um, was the purpose of storytelling um, mm -hmm. in different cultures. Um, and, and in different contexts also. Um, so in, I, think, I think what you say about, and, and I think both of these ideas, the, uh, the place of God um, in um, monotheism versus polytheism is also related to uh, the, the function of storytelling in terms of um, um, uh, 
in, in terms of mythologies or, or religious stories. Um, and um, so, so definitely, I think, I think um, a, a shared feature of Hindu mythology uh, and um, Greek mythology is that, that um, there is a constant discussion of, of um, crises, um, uh, crises of faith, but not, not exactly faith. It's, it's, it's basically a crisis in a relationship between um, the, the holder of power and uh, the subject. Um, uh -huh. And the, the, the crises play out in very different ways, I think, um, depending on uh, whether you're part of a monotheistic um, faith or, or um, polytheistic. And I think, I think the reason this is sort of um, standing out to me so much is because just last week um, I spoke to my class, we, we, we discussed an article on uh, the history of the introduction of English literary education in India oh. um, and how uh, texts were selected for a, a secular English curriculum with the explicit purpose of uh, teaching uh, Christian values uh, under the guise of secular um, reading. Um, and this was done um, basically because um, the, the difference in education that existed in England where the upper classes learned, uh, studied uh, classical works, uh, basically Greek and Latin works, and the lower classes uh, studied religious works, um, could not be transferred oh. as is to the British, uh, the colonial context. They did not want to use that in India because the the people who were, who were going to these institutions of higher education were upper class, but they sure as hell were not going to be encouraged to read uh, Greek and Latin works because they were secular. They were all discussing basically all of these, these um, conflicts of power um, in, in different forms and, and um, social um, challenges to social order, so to speak. Um, and um, that is what they, they had traditionally also been learning when they were looking at um, the, the, the Sanskrit or, or Arabic or, or Farsi works uh, at that time. Um, and they, they couldn't also use the, the um, Christian religious education for the upper classes because there would be pushback um, and that could be potentially unsettling for, for uh, the, the British Indian government. So, so because of that, like it's it's sort of at the forefront of my mind that um, this uh, this purpose of storytelling becomes very different uh, depending on context, depending on um, the 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 cultural background and the cultural baggage that you come into a situation with, um, and and that's that's one of the things that you end up seeing in 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 this collection, I think. Well, you know, one thing I want to I want to respond to with that is, you know, I I'm a curriculum studies person, uh, 
a lot of times. Like I do a lot, the, this, the conference I was at this weekend was on curriculum studies and like, how, which is not necessarily just about how curriculum gets designed, but kind of like these broader questions of like, what is the curriculum? Like, what are people learning across cultural contexts and things of this nature? And it's not just formalized curriculum. Um, and I'm just thinking about, you know, even today we're having these debates about the role of the classics in the, in the curriculum and like, what do these, you know, should we be teaching people this or is it a waste of time? There's, there's, there's a lot of fraught energy around that, uh, mm-hmm. in, in particularly, I think in higher education. But because you were talking about storytelling and the form of storytelling, one thing about this book that I found very intriguing was that it's purposely designed as a retelling of -hmm. these Greek and Roman myths as kind of fables Mm -hmm. for young children. And and I, I wonder, you know, what you think about the fact that Kupfer as a, as an author decided that she was going to retell these probably much more complicated tales in, in a form that was written fable-like. Uh, it, it reads like a book of fables. All the stories are short, you know, four to five pages. They're, they're, I could imagine if I had a child that I would be like, you know, read, oh, we're going to read one story tonight before bed or two, you know, some of the stories are broken into parts. So, I mean, what do you think about the form of this book as children's fables and how these stories get, you know, sort of, retold in that kind of storytelling form well i looking back at it um, as an adult i think she's done a brilliant job it's brilliant i agree i agree just in terms of leaving everything leaving out everything except the bare essentials yeah Um, it it boils things down to their core while also leaving a lot of substance for discussion and the fact that I read the stories as a child and that it started an internal dialogue of some sort that clearly has stayed with me like 30 years later or 35 years later is, is I think a, a testament to its effectiveness um, in, in terms of uh, reaching the audience. But I think also that, that at the time when I was reading it, it was like, so many of the other things that I was reading. It was short stories that, that were accessible, um, but not what I liked best about it, because I was also reading, uh, uh, I had finished reading Aesop's Fables. I was reading a lot of Andrew Lang's collection of fairy tales. Um, and I was looking at uh, uh, the, the Buddhist stories, the Jataka, Jataka stories, and um, the Hindu stories of Panchatantra, all of which like have a moral somewhere. <laughs> and these stories did not have an explicit moral. And that was something that I loved about them. 
uh, in part because I had like until third grade, as I mentioned, um, we had moral science and I hated that class <laughs> with, with all my, with all my 10 year old, all my eight year old soul, because that class, I, I would never leave that class feeling good. Um, but this was exciting because it was interesting, even stories that I did not like, like stories where Juno appeared. It was still interesting. And it gave me the room to express that I did not like something. Um, it gave me room for, 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 for expressing negativity, which I did not find in so many of the other places. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason I asked the question was because, you know, one of the ideas of this podcast way back at the beginning was that I, I want to be able to like connect these like episodes, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and put books into conversation. And like, as I was reading this book, I kept thinking about really two other episodes that have appeared already. One is with my friend Shofei Han, who's uh a philosopher, a children's philosopher. She does a lot with how children's books develop uh, young people's uh, sense of philosophical worldview. And and I just kept thinking, boy, this book in conversation with the books that I read with Shofei about like, how do you teach children philosophical concepts? There is a lot of ambiguity in these stories. There is a lot of like space where you could have a conversation with a young person, or I would argue also as an adult. Like, you know, even though it's written for children, adults, go read the book because it's, it's both highly entertaining and it makes you think about some really complicated questions. The other episode I was thinking of was, was with my friend Rick, where he, he had us read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory in you know, that's another book that is, is just wrought with like these profound questions. You, you keep bringing up power. Um, in that book, there's a lot of questions about power, poverty, mm-hmm. you know, how do you overcome uh, these types of life hardships? Is it right. luck? Is it, is it some other intervention? Is it your hard work? I mean, you know, what is it? Right. So I don't know if that resonated with you or not, but I was just thinking like, it's, it's really. It is. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, now revisiting this book now um, and talking about it with you is making me want more and more to actually read this, read these stories to my son or read them with him. Yes. Just because it would be, it would be just so great to have a discussion of all the stuff that's going on. I mean, he's, he's, he, he's the kind of kid who, who, who's very self-aware and articulate about, about some things. And I've like, when he was five, he, he, he would ask questions like, okay, why are there so many men and not as many women in, in this particular show or, or something like that, but things which sometimes I might not notice. And I feel like just introducing him to these stories would, would open up such fabulous discussions of, um, of ethics, um, of, um, mm. 
of, of questions that are so central to daily life um, at the end of the day. Um, and, and again, I think that goes back to the idea of uh, polytheistic religions um, that, and, and the stories within polytheistic religions, which I think concentrate more on, on daily living and the dilemmas of daily living um, uh, rather than um, the maintenance of social order. Not that, not that those don't exist, mm -hmm. those are very much too, but, but uh, the power of these stories, I think, is, is just that they, they, uh, they pose questions which never get old. No, they're, yeah, I agree. They're timeless questions. They're things we're constantly grappling with. Um, yeah. I, I was also curious about, so your, your version of the book has poems, right? Yes. Does your version of the book talk in the beginning? Like, is there a preface? My version has a preface by the author where she talks a little bit about why she designed the book with, with some poetry involved? Um, it's, I do have a preface, but it's incomplete. Um, so it's, it's just a single page that stops in the middle of the sentence. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think there's something missing in here. Sure. Well, I, I, I just wondered if we could talk a little bit about the poetry because she, um, or the author, talks in, in my preface. She says, uh, following many of the stories, there are poems bearing directly on the subjects. These have been selected with the utmost care. They are designed not merely to introduce the children to some of our greatest authors, but also to cultivate a taste for what is purest and best in literature. Mm -hmm. Now, I wrote what does that mean? What is best in literature now versus then? All of the poems in this book are 19th century, mm -hmm. British, Victorian. Yes. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I, I just, I, I wonder about that in terms of how we, how we thought about that in the 18th and 19th, 19th and 20th century, I guess, and how we would think about it now. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when I was reading this, um, I know, I know as a kid, I used to skip over the poems. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Poetry is hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it, was, it was more like, you know, why are they wasting these, this, space get to the story uh-huh and um, i remember uh, the one one poem in this that i actually remember um is uh, the brook which comes just before the story of echo and narcissus by uh -huh. tennis and the reason I remember this particular poem is because we also had to study it. I think I think the same year uh, that I read this book, we also had to study it for literature class. And it, at that time, it was like, yeah, I mean, poetry is this thing that rhymes and 
we were in, in, in my school, we were expected to memorize poems. I, I still remember things like Lochinvar from by um, Walt, Walter Scott, I think. And I, mm-hmm. I, could, I could recite all of it uh, at one point of time. Mm-hmm. But it was very much, in, in some ways, I mean, the poetry that, that was in this collection was very much like the poetry that I was reading for school. So it was, I, I would read it, maybe try and take a minute or two to understand it if I felt like it and then go on. But I, I never could really get why they were there, to be very honest. And now I think it's, it's, it's part of the whole idea of writing for children uh, and how it is, how, how it's how it used to be viewed, not not so much how it is viewed today, but how it used to be viewed maybe even 30, 40 years ago mm-hmm. as something that um, would socialize them um, into a particular aesthetic, into a particular uh, moral sense. And um, this is very much in, in the same tradition. I mean, Enid Blyton had her own way of working in much of the same goals um, that um, that she has, but uh, hers was much more, uh, much less ambiguous, much more uh, cut and dried in terms of uh, the, the, the values uh, and discussion points. I mean, there was no discussion about whether or not lying was acceptable. You, you should never lie. But, um, in in these stories, there's again that that thing of well, lying is not good, but um, and and that I think is is um, is something that I find fascinating, and I realize just now as I'm speaking that I've gone totally off topic and I'm not talking about the poetry at all. No, 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 no. It doesn't matter. Like <laughs> stream of consciousness thinking. Um, finish what you were going to say. Um, so so this, this whole thing of lying, of the idea of truth um, and um, mm-hmm. the, the value of truth telling, um, it, it goes back to, again, the 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 sense of um, the sense of or absence of comfort with a sense of ambiguity, um, uh, which I think these stories uh, bring up a lot more situations relating that that make you ask that question. And I remember when I thought, and here I'm going completely stream of consciousness. And I yeah, no, I love it. It's the best way to talk. Um, uh, so the my my first semester um, in grad school here in the U.S., um, I remember we were having some uh, conversation at the beginning of uh, one of my classes, uh, one of the classes that I was taking, and um, I, I I just mentioned something I, I I said something like I didn't know lying was necessarily a bad thing until I read Enid Blyton 
And for me, I, I just said that. And as I said it, I remember thinking, hmm, that's weird because, I mean, I was obviously expected to not lie to my parents. Um, and, um, but, but it is true that, that with Enid Blyton and other writers who were much more informed uh, by the Christian faith, there was this sense of children's writing had to be very black and white. Um, and it was, and until, until I started reading those books, so basically until I was about nine or so, my world had never been black and white because all of the stories that I had um, encountered had really been um, shades of gray. Um, uh, the, the gods do bad stuff um, and the gods get cursed by humans. I mean, in, in, there are stories in Hindu mythology where, um, so, so uh, one of the, the stories of the later Hindu tradition um, is about the deity, uh, the god called Vishnu, who's seen as the preserver, who gets cursed uh, by a human um, to, to suffer separation from his wife and um, go through all the trials of a normal human being. And he actually has to do that. And eventually when he does find his wife and he wants to, who, who's also uh, born as a human, um, he has to take out a loan to be able to afford her, afford to marry her because she is um, from a rich family and he is basically a, a, a god who's mortal with no wealth. Um, and and that, that particular form of Vishnu was actually the family deity that my, my family worshipped. So, so my world had never been gray, had never been black and white. It had always been gray. Mm -hmm. um, so so it, it really was an experience to, to realize that in, in some cultures, yes, I mean, lying is seen as, as uh, lying is, is just communicated as being bad, and that's it. I mean, when, when teaching children that that it's that you just do not lie, and and that's not how children are, though. Children, it's it's a developmental thing. It, children learn about navigating things in part through lying and knowing that they're lying. That that's how they eventually learn to separate truth from fiction. Um, yeah. So how do you? I mean, this is this is totally off topic. So I apologize. But how do you, no? How do you see lying coming up in the book? Um, I think I think just in terms of not directly in this book, but just in terms of the spaces that it occupies, um, the ambiguities in the book, um, the the ethical ambiguities in specific uh, to be specific mm -hmm. are similar to uh, some of the ethical ambiguities that are addressed in the hindu pantheon but also like in in terms of the specific story in the book that reminded me of um, of zones 
where you can't just say this is good or evil is when um, Mercury is sent to kill Argus so that Io could be rescued. Um, and Io had been turned into this cow by, by Juno, who was jealous of Jupiter's attention to, 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 Io. to Io. Right. And Argus basically was not doing anything wrong. And eventually he is beheaded. I mean, he was just he was just watching over Io because that's what he'd been told to. He was not hurting her in any way. Um, and he gets beheaded. And that was the story where you don't know who is right or who is wrong. I mean, yes, Juno is the one person you are, you are absolutely clear about. <laughs> but the rest of that story of Io is just so uh, problematic. It's just so messed up. Yeah, although I think, you know, going back to what we were saying earlier is that it still remains unresolved to me about whether Juno is also in the wrong. I mean, the, 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 stories, the, the, the stories paint Juno as this kind of vicious, you know, very headstrong, very um, jealous character. But to your point, there could have been something informing that that we don't have the backstory about. And, you know, so you have to think that even in that regard, the stories themselves make you question whether, well, is Juno bad for trying to protect the fidelity of her marriage, for example, or, or whatever the question is, right. you know, in those regards. Yeah. Um, right. Yeah, the only reason I brought up the thing about the poetry was because I wanted to one of the things you said was that there, there there's a there, there's a way that we try to like socialize students into a, or socialize young people into a particular aesthetic form and I, I just I think about the role of poetry as part of this kind of you know there is this this sort of classist um, high culture way of thinking about the role of poetry in our society and right. You know, I was I was also just curious about. You know, I think there's a lot of discussion now in, in culture, uh, or at least the cultural circles I ascribe to, about you know, well, really, what is the best literature? What is the best? You know, and obviously, at the time this book was written, it was you know directed in a particular way towards right. these kind of Victorian poets. Um, I, I happen to love poetry. So, I mean, reading the poems was like wonderful for me, but I, I just didn't know if you, if, if that, you know, stuck out to you in any way or anything like that, so. No, I think, I think more than the poems, I mean, what, what really stuck out for me was the, the use of the word best and the confidence with which yeah. it's being used. Um, because there's no room for uncertainty over there. And, uh, yeah, that even as a as a as a child, every time I would see something that was saying, okay, this is the best form or something, I would be like, oh my god, I I I know I'm gonna have a hard time with this. 
mm-hmm. because um, it, it the the idea of something being the best is really so closely tied to what you're trying to get out of it, um, and if even if you're trying to fo- shape a particular aesthetic, like like you said, it's it, that the the shaping of the aesthetic is is um, that that the shaping of that particular aesthetic sense or that taste is so closely tied to um, classist ideas of what should be known um, and a way of identifying yourself to a group of peers, so to speak. Um, and I think that that goes to one of the core questions of education really as to what are you trying to get out of it? What is worth teaching? And why is it worth teaching? What knowledge is of most worth? Exactly. That's and a key can... curricular question. Yep. Yeah. Whose knowledge gets privileged? Exactly. And and why why do we think that anything has worth? I mean, is it is it because of the economics of it? Is it because of the history of it? Is it is it because, like for my son in, in his school, he's, he's, he, he has art class and he knows a lot more about Western art um, and Western art traditions than I do already. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because they explicitly, like since first grade, they've been learning about all of this and I never have. Um, but it, it gives him a way to navigate the community that he inhabits. Uh, and I have never felt the need for that. Or when I have felt the need for that, I've just sort of felt an imposter complex for being in, mm. in, in that particular circle without that uh, prior knowledge. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to ask you just in closing, if there's anything that we didn't talk about with this book that you you feel very compelled to discuss before we end our our time together. Um, I'm I'm just looking over the notes that I wrote for myself. Yeah. And I think think we touched on everything. Uh, Maybe... uh, yeah, I think I think we touched on everything, um, including including the idea of people getting transformed into stars. <laughs> I know I love that story so much. People, Cassiopeia and the Great Bear and the Little Bear and all of that. So, what's your kind of closing thought for listeners about this book? What or what you would tell them about the importance of this book, or, or why they should read it, or or whatever. Um, I would say that this book is important for its um, ambiguities and for the for the discussion mm-hmm. for the for the various points that you can chew on after mm-hmm. you put it down, um, and 
this book ideas and and characters in this book might have a way of coming back to you at very unexpected times um which it has always done i i uh, like i said 30 35 years on i i still i still remember uh, mm-hmm. from this book and um i would say that it would be important also to to go to it not necessarily thinking of it as being um, the basis for uh, a lot of Western uh, literature and Western civilization, but also as as a point of connection with a lot of work from the East. It's it's the perfect bridge, really. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. I, I loved the book. I, like I said, I, I thought it was just, it was so enjoyable. Uh, it was wonderful to revisit the stories uh, or, or even in some cases to learn some of the stories that I had never heard before. Uh, we didn't necessarily talk about that, but for example, I was, I was really struck by the idea that there was like the sleep God. I had never thought that there was a sleep God and there's a story in there about the sleep God. And you know, I, so now when I go to sleep, I'm like, Somnus, come to me, <laughs> let, let, let me go to sleep. Um, so it, it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity to talk to you. I'm really glad that you took me up on the offer to be on the, the podcast. And um, I look forward to seeing who you're going to recommend as, you know, the next people that I should talk to uh, and, and read from. So thank you for being part of the project. And Thank you, know, you just being amazing oh thank you so much i again i i appreciate it so much that you reached out to me and thank you to christine for recommending me to be on this show it was so much fun to to firstly think about the book that i would want to recommend and then think about why um, it mattered so much to me and this conversation with you has um, given me so much more that I want to think of now. And I'll probably go back and reread the book yet again. <laughs> I hope you read it with your son. If you do, please let me know. Um, yes. I, you know, and I, I, I actually hope we'll keep in touch now that I know that you're just down at Rice. That's, yes. you know, it's perfect. Um, we're, we're all in the same city. So we'll yes. definitely keep in touch for sure. Yes, absolutely. I'd love that. Thank perfect. you both. Well, thank you so much. And um, I'm going to stop this recording.